Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are discussing the 13th Perek of Shmuel Bet, which is a very difficult Perek to read. In fact, I'm going to put a little content warning, a little content advisory on this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. If you're listening in the car while driving carpool, maybe put on some music instead. In the last Perek, David sinned with Bathsheba. Now, Tanha Navi told David that he would be punished, and no time is lost in our encountering the first expression of that punishment. We learn that David's son, Amnon, is completely taken by his half-sister, Tamar, who is a full sister to Absalom. There's some debate around the exact familial relationship between Tamar and Amnon. Chazal uh, try to, uh, for, for good reason, try to figure out a way in which they are uh, less related. Uh, Each reading has its uh, flaws, but let's just assume that they are half-siblings, children to two different wives of David. Amnon's friend and relative, Yonadav, asks Amnon, you know, why the long face? Why are you so sad? And he tells him that he has these feelings for Tamar, these unexpressed feelings. He's so taken by Tamar. He's lusting after Tamar. He wants Tamar. And Yonadav uh, gives him advice to basically feign sickness and have his father, David, send for Tamar to come and prepare food for him and to take care of him, and that will be the context in which Amnon will have a chance to seduce her. The advice is already kind of suspect and seedy, uh, but it seems that uh, Yonadav does not have in mind exactly what Amnon ends up doing, that Amnon goes well beyond what it was that Yonadav was suggesting. Amnon Initially follows the plan to a T. He, f- he f- fakes uh, being sick. He pretends to be ill. David discovers him in this state, and Amnon suggests that David send for Tamar, which he does. Tamar then prepares food for Amnon, uh, and Amnon asks all of those who were present, you know, in the princely and with the prince and the princess there, there was lo- 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 likely lots of servants, whomever, uh, present. And so he asks for everyone to leave. So it's just Tamar and Amnon. And then Amnon seizes Tamar. He asks her to, to be with him, to lie with him. She refuses. She tries to reason with him. Uh, she says, this will cause great shame. Don't do this. Um, and she even suggests, and this touches back on what exactly their relationship is. She says, why not ask David for my, to permit me to marry you? Uh, I'm sure he'll say yes. And then this doesn't have to be done in some sort of um, uh, inappropriate way. And he refuses. And, he's, and he rapes her. Immediately after they are together, Amnon's lust for Tamar is replaced by an intense feeling of hatred. Undoubtedly, this is not because Tamar has done anything wrong, but because she now stands as a symbol of Amnon's shame. He's projecting his own feelings of disgust onto Tamar. And so he then adds insult to injury, and he has Tamar taken out of his home. He's, he's very dismissive of her. And just the, this kind of symbol of he has them bolt the door behind her. This is a very abrupt and uh, very kind of brutish treatment of his victim. Now, you might assume, well, Tamar wasn't very much interested in lingering in Amnon's home anyways. Uh, it wasn't nice that he so summarily dismissed her, but, you know, Tamar wouldn't have been interested in staying with Amnon, but that's not actually correct. And here I think it's helpful to give a little bit of background based on the Torah's discussion of what happens after a person uh, rapes 
a, a single woman. The halacha is that the, the, the Torah tells us that this man now actually has to marry uh, the victim, has to marry this woman. She can refuse. She doesn't have to say yes. She doesn't have to marry him, but he has to offer uh, to marry her. And that's because in the ancient world, there was great value for a woman to be married. It, was, uh, it provided a certain degree of stability, social stability, financial stability, and well-being. And especially after a woman has lost her, her virginity in this way, um, so her prospects of marriage are greatly diminished. And so it, is, it becomes the responsibility of the, uh, of the man in this situation to then uh, care for this woman and to take her into his home. I know it's profoundly different than our social norms. It's unintuitive, perhaps even unimaginable to think that Tamar would want to stay with Amnon, but she does. She does want to. And she, and she says, she tells Amnon, even worse than the way that you violated me is the fact that you are now removing me from your home and not taking me as a wife. And, and that's unfortunately precisely what Amnon does. Tamar runs to her brother Avshalom and uh, he uh, takes her into his home. He's extremely upset, but unlike Amnon, who seems to be uh, uh, just uh, acts without any thought, and is uh, out of control, Avshalom is, is very measured. He doesn't act right away. In fact, he waits a few years, uh, which pass by, uh, and it's the time of uh, when you go out into the, to the field to shear the sheep. Um, Avshalom uh, asks David to send his brothers with him, specifically uh, Amnon. Initially, David is hesitant, but he ultimately concedes. He sends Amnon, and while they're out, uh, some distance from where everyone lives uh, with the, the she- to, to shear the sheep, Avshalom gets Amnon drunk and he has his men kill Amnon. Word get, gets back to David. Initially, he learns that Avshalom had killed all of David's sons. I think that's meant to suggest to us that uh, perhaps you know David thought that this was some sort of coup. Right? When you have the prince killing all the other princes, it's a, it's a play for power. In any event, that quickly gets corrected and he learns that it's just Amnon. David then mourns Amnon greatly, and, uh, and Avshalom runs away. And we also learn that David is pained by his absence as well. And that's where the parak ends, David obviously suffering very much here uh, as a result of his sin with David, uh, as a, resu- a result of his sin with Bathsheba. And there's so much to say uh, about this parak, but let me limit myself to just a few important points. Firstly, as I noted, this parak follows from last parak. It's a, it's a punishment for David and Bathsheba's sins. But I think the units are, are in even deeper dialogue. It's not just that one follows on the other. I think they're meant to be, we're meant to be looking at them together and, and in a certain respect, contrasting David's behavior to Amnon's. David sinned greatly with Bathsheba, but Amnon's treatment of Tamar is far worse than David's treatment of Bathsheba in at least two ways. Firstly, it doesn't seem that David took Bathsheba by force. It's true. There is a disparity in power. David is the king. And so you could say that he didn't have to be as forceful to have his way and to have done so against her will in a certain sense. But at least literarily in Parak Yod Aleph, uh, the matter is stated uh, just matter-of-factly that he lied with Bathsheba. Whereas here we have this very vivid account of Amnon's forceful behavior towards Tamar, uh, and, and I think Amnon is meant to look much the worse for it. In, in putting the two together, seeing them as kind of foils to one another, or contrasting similar but contrasting stories, I think Amnon emerges looking much worse. And secondly, after, and this is so important, after David is with Bathsheba, he brings her into his house, and he takes her as a wife. 
David has sinned, but in response, he does the right thing. Amnon, as we noted, does not. And so I think that one is the foil to the other. It's meant to sharpen how terrible, right? To sharpen in our mind's eye how terrible Amnon's behavior is here. And there's, in addition to these two narratives being in conversation, there's another narrative, really a constellation of other narratives that are also so obviously floating around in the background of this parak. And namely, the series of stories in Bracious, which involve Yaakov's children, which begin, by the way, in the Parsha that we're up to this week is Vayishlach. Uh, it's the narratives that begin in this week's Parsha. To put it bluntly, these are the stories of Yaakov's home spinning out of his control. Of course, the most prominent uh, connection between our Perek and these Prakim uh, of this second half, let's say, of Sefer Bracious, or the, the, the end chunk of Sefer Bracious, uh, is, is the connection to the story of Shimon and Levi who go and they avenge Dina's rape at the hands of Shechem. There are so many ways in which these stories intersect, but let me just take one very stark contrast, which, like the contrast from, that we just uh, developed between our story and the Dov and Bacheva story, also serves to highlight how wicked Amnon and his behavior was. We're told that Shechem, the person, uh, rapes Dina, but then what happens? What, what's, what, what happens after uh, he does this terrible act? He, he ends up falling in love with her and he desperately wants to marry her, to do the right thing. He's even willing to undergo and have all of his people undergo circumcision to marry Dina, which is precisely what he does. He does undergo the circumcision. So even this absolute low life was prepared to go to great lengths to then honor his responsibility to Dina. And after he does something wicked, he he wants to do what, in his eyes at least, is the right thing. And in the eyes of, let's say, the ancient world, was the right thing. Precisely the opposite of Amnon. Amnon is so much worse than even Shechem. So that's one way in which these two connections, uh, th- these two stories being connected, uh, elevate our understanding and our moral judgment of Amnon in this story. There's another very strong line drawn in these gracious narratives to our, our narrative between David and Yaakov. David and Yaakov. In these two narratives, David finds out uh, about, um, so in, in our narrative, David finds out about what happens to Tamar. He's very angry, we're told, but he's silent. He doesn't act. He doesn't intervene. And that's very similar to when Yaakov finds out what happened to Dina. He's also silent. He does not initially intervene. And it is Shimon and Levi who end up in the driver's seat, really moving forward with the whole interaction with Shechem. Additionally, when Yaakov finds out what Ruvain does with Bilha, he's also silent. So the, we have this, this connection between the, the, these parental figures seeing the, mis, the, the, the misbehavior of their children and being passive. Not only that, but Yaakov, just like David, David, just like Yaakov, they become the unfortunate and unknowing accessories to their children's crimes which I'm sure they punish themselves for when they think about it. Yaakov sends Yosef to the brothers when they go and in turn sell him to down to Egypt or what he thinks is to his death. David likewise sends Tamar to Amnon where she's raped. He sends Amnon to Avshalom where he is killed. David sends his own children to their awful fates. So these literary allusions draw our attention to the ways that David's house spins out of his control and as, and as he grows more passive, just as the, the same thing happened to Yaakov. 
For good, for good measure, I'll just note a few other very clear connections. Uh, for example, Tamar, when she is uh, kicked out of the home of Amnon, we learn that what is she wearing? A ketonet pasim, which by the way, she tears. A torn ketonet pasim, that sounds familiar. Um, Amnon, and everyone, right, Amnon asks everyone when he's with Tamar, he asks everyone to leave the room. It's the same language that Yosef uses when he clears everyone from the room as he's going to reveal himself to his brothers in Egypt. I'll add one more. When Tamar is reasoning with Amnon not to, not to lie with her, not to forcefully take her, she uses the same language that Yosef uses to try and reason with Ashes Potiphar, uh, who is making the advances, the uh, undesirable advances against Yosef. The list goes on. As I've demonstrated to some degree, these literary, these literary allusions sometimes serve a very concrete purpose to sharpen our moral judgment of a character, of a particular behavior. But in some instances, these allusions are just there to kind of heighten, I think, our general experience of reading this parak, to see it not as an isolated incident, but a particularly violent and extreme expression of a national story that repeats itself. As we are currently reading the relevant partios in Bereshis, I want to encourage you to read this week's parsha is Vayishlach. Read Vayishlach. Read the account of Shimon uh, and Levi and Dina and Shem. I'm sure that you'll be able to find many interesting connections. Try to think about if they help us uh, articulate a particular narr- a particular point. Are they there to, to to present a certain argument, or are they there just to elevate, as I said, a kind of general sense of this story being an echoing one, an eternally echoing one of our people? If nothing else, seeing these connections heightens our appreciation for the extraordinary craftsmanship that is employed by the author in crafting this story, even while telling the most painful of narratives. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.